Well, hey, good evening, uh, Fathom Academy once again. Good to have you here. Chris Martin, I'm the lead pastor at Fathom. Uh, if, if you're joining us, you maybe are our guest, you've never been with us, good to have you. Um, this is week five of this Fathom Academy course on uh, Christian theology, the doctrines of our faith. Uh, and uh, this week we get to uh, kind of dive into a, a, a largely overlooked in evangelical, but, uh, but, but unbelievably important doctrine. And the, it's the doctrine of pneumatology, the, the study of the Spirit of God. And so uh, we're really looking forward to this uh, after we've spent a couple of weeks talking about the second person of the Trinity as we talked about Jesus Christ. Now we move to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, who is actually the active agent with us right now. Uh, so this is going to be one of those strange things where we are being informed by the Spirit on the Spirit tonight. So I'm excited about this. I'm looking forward to hearing from my brother Ryan. Lord, uh, let, let's pray together, and then we're going to jump into this. Father, we're, we're uh, excited to uh, study the Spirit. Uh, Lord, I think, uh, if, if I'm honest, this is the, the, the person in the Trinity that I am um, maybe most uncomfortable with, less, uh, least uh, aware about. Um, maybe just, just, I would pray for myself, probably for, for my brothers and sisters tonight, Lord, that you would deepen us, that you would expand our minds, but but deepen our hearts uh, to know and love you for who you are, uh, and specifically the person of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, we pray to you, would you uh, enlighten our, our, our minds, open our hearts uh, to learn about who you are. Oh, Lord, we love you. We, we pray this uh, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you for that prayer, Pastor Chris, uh, where we pray by the power of the Spirit, and that's right. Um, and here in week five, we are picking up on the doctrine of pneumatology, which is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, in the history of doctrine, particularly in the churches of the West, right, the Roman Catholic, and then all the various Protestant traditions, the Holy Spirit has sort of gotten short shrift, right? Sometimes it is joked that the Holy Spirit is sort of the unwanted stepchild of the Holy Trinity. And even the way that we talk about the Spirit as the third person seems to imply that there's some sort of hierarchy within the Trinity, within the Trinity as if there's a sort of subordination where the Father is on top and the Son is the, is the sort of second in command and then way at the bottom you've got the Spirit. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible talks about the, the triune God acting as one all over the place. And the spirit in particular does all kinds of things in the Bible uh, and in the, in the Christian faith that we perhaps are not cognizant of. So we're going to try and draw some attention uh, to the often neglected doctrine of the, the Holy Spirit. And I know that it's true in my case. I'm a Baptist, right? There's a joke. In Baptist circles, that you got the Holy Trinity, God, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures, and the Spirit doesn't factor in at all, but we really need to recover that. And uh, I sometimes laugh as I think about my own church where I was raised and where I minister now, and maybe you have this experience. We've got ushers in our churches for two reasons. One is to help you find a seat, uh, and two is to intervene if your hands get to about here in worship, and then they'll jump in, right? But what would it look like? for us to recover a really robust doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what I want to talk about in our time together this evening. And so we're going to do it in four parts. Uh, we got a lot of material to cover. I'll do my best to cover it sort of quickly, uh, but also thoroughly. So we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk a little bit about why the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was a bit slow to develop 
in comparison to other doctrines in the early church, particularly in comparison to Christology. Then we're going to look in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is very important. Uh, we need to think of the Holy Spirit as a person, not a thing or an it. Really, really important. Uh, and we're going to unpack why that is the case. In part three, we're going to talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit. Early Christian theologians did a lot of important work to emphasize that the Holy Spirit is God in the same way that God the Father is God and in the same way that God the Son is God. And then in part four, I'm going to talk just very briefly about kind of four main areas where we see the Holy Spirit at work, right? The things that the Holy Spirit does, the operations of the Holy Spirit. So, Let's uh, make an introduction here. Now, there, as I mentioned, the Holy Spirit uh, is typically underdeveloped as a doctrine in our Christian traditions, unless you come from a Pentecostal or a charismatic background. Uh, and if you do, in many ways, I'm very jealous of you because you've got this really uh, robust and active doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And as I reflect on my own theology, theologians sometimes make a... a yeah, a distinction between our formal theology, what it is we say we believe on paper, what it is we confess if we had to write a doctrinal statement, and then our functional theology, which is how we actually practice the faith. And I'm afraid to say that too often in my own life and ministry, I have had a formal doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but not much of a functional doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if you can actually relate to that. You know, you say you believe in the Holy Spirit, but what does the Holy Spirit actually do in the life of your Christian community and in the life of your own uh, journey with God. Uh, and so hopefully uh, the material that we cover tonight will help with some of that. But there are some challenges to the, studying the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and I want to introduce it from a quotation uh, from the, the Pentecostal theologian Terry Cross. And Cross says this, the bane and bog of most evangelical theology for the last century has been the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. To be sure, part of this dilemma is shared by all Christian theology in the West and namely, that's because the Spirit has been portrayed in Scripture without a face or with non-personal characteristics, you know. And he, he mentions here that the Scripture uh, sometimes portrays the Spirit as a dove or wind or fire. And the result uh, is that theological consideration of the third article of the Creed, and the, the third article refers to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So the first article is the Father, second article is the Son. We looked at that last week third article is the spirit. And so he says our consideration of the third article often lacks depth and nuance. And he's right. Uh, our doctrines of the Holy Spirit tend to be underdeveloped. We either think of the spirit not at all, or we think of the spirit in sort of impersonal terms, kind of like the force in Star Wars. This is especially true uh, in some sort of prosperity gospel circles. Have you ever seen videos, say, of Benny Hinn, the televangelist? You're seeing him in action, shooting the Holy Spirit around like some sort of laser blaster, knocking people over, uh, making dragging people across the stage by the Holy Spirit. When this is over, go on to YouTube and watch Benny Hinn in action. And it's pretty disturbing for reasons that I'll talk about here in a second. But Cross makes the point, you know, uh, it's hard to talk about the Spirit. It's hard to conceptualize the Spirit because we know what a father is, right? We have a category for that. We know what a son is. We have a category for that. But what does it mean to be a spirit and a person? We have a hard time with that. Part of the difficulty, he says, is the Bible sometimes uses impersonal images. We'll talk more about that. Uh, and so part of it is we're just not really sure what to do with the spirit. So we're going to try to address that problem together this week. The place I want to start, though, is by saying that we must be very careful when we study 
the, the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible, whatever else it says about the Spirit, says that the Spirit is God's untamable power. Okay? Untamable power. And so to get us thinking about this, I want to have a look at John chapter 3. This is a very, very important passage. This is Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus, uh, where Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, who's a, a, a member of the Jewish ruling council, he says, if you want to be born of God, you need to be born again. By the And Nicodemus says, well, what are you talking about? How's that possible? How can a man be born twice? And Jesus talks about being born of the spirit, right? And here Jesus is talking quite a lot about the spirit. And there's a really interesting wordplay going on in Greek that is lost in English. Uh, so I'll try to point that this out in, in John chapter three, verse eight. Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, the wind blows where it wants. The word for wind here is pneuma, pneuma in Greek. The pneuma blows where it wants. And you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So he's saying, hey, listen, you, you know how the wind just sort of blows and swirls around and sometimes it blows really hard and sometimes it slows down and you can see it rustling trees, but you can't see this, the wind itself. Jesus says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And he uses that same word again, to pneumatos. And so the word for wind and the word for spirit in Greek are actually the same word. And Jesus is using it in two senses here. Uh, he says, the wind goes where it wants to. It is powerful. You cannot contain it. You can't predict it. It's untamable. And he says, the Spirit of God is the same. This is really important because when we talk about the spirit of God, we are talking about God's untamable freedom and power. This is very, very important, especially for those of us who are in ministry, because John 3 indicates that you can't make the spirit do anything. The spirit does what it wants to do. He says, you, can, you, you don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going, which means that there is no formula that you can invoke, no sort of incantation that you can recite to make the Spirit of God bless your life, bless your marriage, bless your ministry, right? We don't harness the Spirit. We try to get in step with the Spirit, as Paul puts it. We try to see what the Spirit is doing and follow the Spirit, but we don't dictate what the Spirit does. Very, very important. And maybe Benny Hinn should think a little bit more about John chapter three the next time he tries to shoot the spirit like a laser blaster because we don't direct the spirit to do anything. It is God's untamable power, which is why oftentimes in the Bible, the spirit of God is identified with uh, sort of uh, powerful natural forces like wind and fire, right? So all that is to say, a word of caution here because we're treading on some very mysterious and actually quite dangerous ground when we talk about the spirit, because uh, the spirit is more powerful than we could ever imagine. And we don't direct it, it directs us, at least ideally. So let's talk a little bit about the way that the Bible talks about the spirit. And we're going to have to talk a little bit of, of, about grammar here, uh, which I know is boring, but it's important. So uh, bear with me for a second. In Hebrew, the word is often ruach, Ruach, the, the spirit of God, the Ruach of God. In Hebrew, this is a feminine noun, okay? Uh, in Greek, the word is pneuma, which is neuter, right? Uh, unlike uh, some other languages, Greek has a neuter uh, class, right? So nouns can be uh, feminine, masculine, or neuter. Pneuma is neuter. Uh, also, the, the New Testament uses the word parakletos, Paraclete, this is in the masculine, 
right? Uh, paraclete is a hard word to uh, translate. It appears uh, often in John's gospel in particular, where the Holy Spirit is referred to as the paraclete. Paraclete literally means one who comes alongside of. So sometimes it is translated as like helper. Sometimes it's translated as advocate or comforter or something like this. Uh, but really what it means is God's active presence alongside of, right? Parakletos. And the point here is that the Bible uses uh, masculine, feminine, and neuter images to talk about the spirit, which suggests that the spirit uh, is not constrained by gender. And in fact, when we speak about God, the, the categories of gender don't apply. Uh, he is beyond those genders. But we use gendered language to talk about God simply because we are trying to speak about God as being personal. And in fact, uh, when the New Testament uses pronouns to talk about the Spirit, and I'm just, I'm just speaking on a grammatical level here, it always uses the word he, not it. Okay? There's a word in Greek for it, and there's a word in Greek for he, and it always uses the he word, which all of that is to suggest not that the Spirit is a man, but that the Spirit is a person, not a thing. Right. Do you see the importance of the grammatical point here? So as clumsy as it is, and we often do this in English, we really shouldn't speak of the spirit as an it. We should speak of the spirit as a he. Uh, and you could use she. I have no objection to that. That's uh, some controversial in some circles. But the Bible uses masculine and feminine language to talk about the spirit. So there's no good reason why we couldn't talk, speak about the, the spirit as a she. All that we're really trying to communicate is that the spirit is a person, not a thing. Okay. So that's really important that the Bible emphasizes that the, the Spirit is a person, and I'll talk more about that in a bit. Uh, Cross makes the point that the Bible often refers to the Spirit using impersonal images. Uh, and there's three in particular that are common. A dove, right? Uh, you, you, you may see in cathedral stained glass windows uh, with the sort of a dove breaking forth. Uh, that's often a way that the Holy Spirit is imaged. Uh, and it's how the Holy Spirit appears in Jesus's baptism, say, in Mark chapter 1. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus as a dove. Uh, the Holy Spirit is depicted as fire in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where it says that fire came down and fell on the disciples. Uh, and the Spirit is often depicted as a wind or gale. That's also there in Acts chapter 2 and in John chapter 3, which we just looked at. Uh, but Acts chapter two presents the spirit sort of blowing through powerfully. And these two images, fire and wind in particular, do emphasize the sort of untamable power of the spirit. It can't be harnessed and it can't be commodified. Later in Acts, Simon Magus, I think, uh, tries to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter as if it's some sort of substance or a commodity that you could purchase and distribute. And Peter says, buddy, that's not how it works, right? The spirit of God is free and powerful. Okay. Now I mentioned earlier that one of the problems we run into doctrinally when, when talking about the Holy Spirit is that it was a little bit slow to develop as a doctrine, especially in comparison to other doctrines. And part of the problem is that even some of our greatest minds in the Christian tradition have had a hard time conceptualizing the spirit in personal terms, right? This is one of the difficulties that Terry Cross introduced us to earlier in our talk. Uh, and the best example probably is Augustine of Hippo. That's a name many of you will know, St. Augustine, author of Confessions. He wrote a very important book, De Trinitate, it's called, On the Trinity, in which he deals with the Spirit a little bit. But the problem is, even a mind as great as Augustine kind of falls into a trap of speaking of the Spirit in impersonal terms. Listen to what he says. The Holy Spirit, he says, is the love which is from God and is God. 
right? Uh, he has this complicated analogy, this metaphor in De Trinitate, where he says that God, the Father, is the lover, the Son is the one who is loved, and the Spirit is the love between them. Well, the problem with depicting the Holy Spirit as love is that that's an impersonal image, and that's not actually a very good summary of the way the New Testament in particular talks about the Spirit of God. He goes on to say, he, the Holy Spirit, is the one meant when we read God is love, right? This is from 1 John. So it is God, the Holy Spirit, proceeding from God who fires man to the love of God and neighbor when he has been given to him, and he himself is love. So the love which is from God and is God is distinctively the Holy Spirit. Now, there's an element where Augustine is right about this, uh, where it is the Holy Spirit who fires us. I love that language, who fires us to love of God and love of neighbor. But I think he runs into trouble when he says that the Spirit is love and not a person with agency. So that's what we're going to try to clear up in our time together. Now, uh, I mentioned that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is a bit underdeveloped in our circles, usually, unless you're in a Pentecostal or maybe a Foursquare or a Charismatic Circle. But uh, it's generally been the case that it's been underdeveloped in the history of Western theology. I want to give you a couple examples. This is a creed here that you'll get on your study guide called the Old Roman Symbol, which uh, dates to about the second century, the 100s. Uh, and listen to how it reads. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. That's all it says about the Father. Listen to all it says about Jesus. In, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born from the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does make an appearance, right, as the one who um, facilitates uh, the conception of Jesus. And the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified, buried on the third day, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. Oh, and by the way, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. And that's all it says. There is one sentence, and it has no content at all. Here's another example. This is from the Nicene Creed. We met this document last week when we talked about Christology. And you'll notice tons of Christology in this document. We believe in one Lord, uh, one God, uh, the Father Almighty, maker of all things seen and unseen. One Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, from the same substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being. Okay, really good. Oh, more Christology. Who, on account of us human beings and for our salvation, came down and took on flesh, becoming a human being. He suffered and rose again on the third day and ascended into the heavens, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Okay, deep breath, lots of Christology. What's up next? The Spirit, and in the Holy Spirit, the end, right? What's going on here? Why does the early church appear to have so little to say about the Spirit? Well, a uh, couple of things going on. It wasn't until later, until the fourth century, uh, that we really see in official doctrinal statements of the church, the spirit being given any meaningful work to do. Here's the Nicene Creed, which was modified at the Council of Constantinople in 381. This is the form of the creed that most commonly circulates today. And if you skip down on your handout, you'll see that finally the Holy Spirit actually gets a full paragraph. And what is it that the Holy Spirit does? Well, we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life. The spirit is the one who gives life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. This is a very important development because it shows that oh, here we are in the, at the end of the fourth century, and for the first time we have a doctrinal statement that says, yeah, the Holy Spirit is entitled to the same glory 
and the same worship and the same adoration as father and son. And he spake by the prophets. Uh, Very important here that the Bible uh, is being seen as, in some ways, the product of the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. But really, we should be thinking about the Bible, our theology of the Bible, as a subset of our new mythology. The Bible proceeds through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who spoke by the prophets. So here's the question. How do we account for what seems to be the stunted development of pneumatology in the history of doctrine? There's a couple of reasons. Number one, doctrines are usually forged in controversy. So we spent a lot of time last week, maybe more time than you would have liked, talking about early Christological heresies and all of the controversy about the person of Jesus. And it was because there were so many heretical or heterodox views of Jesus circulating that the church really had to focus on Christology. And as H.B. Sweet, who's a, an Anglican theologian, says, there was, no, uh, not, there was as yet no formal theology of the Spirit and no effort to create it, nor was there any conscious heresy. So Sweet is saying the reason, one of the reasons anyway, that the Spirit develops as a doctrine a little bit later is that there wasn't as much controversy around it. And we don't have the same sorts of heresies circulating around the Spirit as we do again around the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Christology in particular. And another reason, I think, is that the church's functional theology was ahead of its confessional theology. Uh, and what I mean here is we've got lots of evidence that the Holy Spirit is being worshipped and glorified in early Christian worship, even though there's not yet a formal doctrinal statement explaining who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does. Uh, and we see this, as we just saw in the Nicene Creed, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. So it seems to be the case in the early church that their formal theology was lagging behind their functional theology. A bit. And I want to show you a couple of examples as we look at some early church fathers to give you an idea of what the Spirit was doing uh, in their theology. This is from Ignatius of Antioch, who is a very early Christian theologian. Right? Uh, his career as a bishop starts within the first century. So he's within a generation of the events of the New Testament. And he says this, uh, members of the church, he says, are stones of the temple prepared beforehand uh, as a building of God the Father hoisted aloft by that engine of Jesus Christ, his cross, using the Holy Spirit for a rope where your faith is a windlass and your love the way that leads up to God. Uh, This is a very sort of convoluted and sort of confusing metaphor, but he's saying essentially the church is like a cathedral being built out of stones And it is the Holy Spirit, uh, which is the rope that gets hooked onto a pulley that pulls these huge stones into place. And all that Ignatius is trying to say is that unless we've got a good doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we will have a terrible doctrine of the church, right? Because he's linking uh, pneumatology directly to ecclesiology. That is our theology of the church. And what he's saying here is uh, the church is a building that is only possible if the Holy Spirit moves the stones into place. And uh, as it happens, he's picking up on a very important Pauline theme. Uh, Those of you who are at Fathom are going through a series on 1 Corinthians, which is wonderful because it's a a magnificent book where Paul is doing lots of important theological work and he's doing lots of important work around the church, okay? And uh, it's my understanding that you did 1 Corinthians 3 probably a few weeks back now, but maybe you'll remember. Now, Paul's saying something very important and sort of very similar to what Ignatius is saying here. But the problem is, here again in English, we've got some problems. In English, uh, we use the same word for the second person singular and the second person plural. So if I want to say to Chris, hey, you, I say, hey, you. But if I want to talk to the entire audience, I say, hey, you, and it's the same word. 
Now, I grew up in Colorado, uh, where y'all is not in our vocabulary. But if you come from a part of the country where you say y'all, you've actually got a very helpful grammatical piece of speech here, right? Because it, it distinguishes the difference between singular and plural. Now, Greek has that same difference between singular and plural. There's two different forms of the word, but that's lost in our English translation. So listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Do you not know, that's how our English Bible is translated, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The only problem is that in Greek, both of those yous are plural. So what Paul is saying is, do y'all not know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And part of the problem here is I was at a camp one time, a summer camp where a well-meaning speaker used this passage to tell us that we shouldn't do drugs and get tattoos. Now I agree. You shouldn't do drugs. Tattoos. I'm indifferent towards, they look painful but that's not what this passage is about at all. It's not about how you treat your own individual body. Now that's important. It's just not what Paul's talking about in this passage. He's talking about y'all. Y'all together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So here, very, very early on in Christian thinking, within within a couple decades of the death of Jesus, Paul is saying the Spirit of God is what holds the Christian community together. Okay? So very early on, we see the spirit being connected to the doctrine of the church. I'll give you another example. This is from a guy named Irenaeus of Lyon, who is a theologian who is working in what is now France, writing in the middle of the second century. And he says this, the ecclesia, the church, the assembled body, believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So he's quoting the creed here. And the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and we believe, he says, in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God and the advents and the birth from a virgin and the passion and the resurrection from the dead and the ascension into heaven. So Irenaeus is doing two very important things. He is linking the Spirit of God directly to revelation, particularly in the scriptures. So the the only reason that we have a Bible and that we can make any sense of it is because of the illumination and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's linking the Spirit to the economy of salvation. We often fall into a really problematic tendency to think about the Father is the one who's in charge of creation, the Son is in charge of salvation, and the Spirit is in charge of sanctification or the Christian life, whatever. That sort of taxonomy while it's understandable, is actually pretty problematic because we should think of all of these things as the work of the triune God in unison. And so Irenaeus is saying that all of these dispensations of of the salvation story, the advent of Jesus, his passion, his resurrection, his ascension, the spirit is right there, right? Doing that work. And around the same period, another thinker named Clement of Alexandria he spoke of the Spirit's function of interpreting the Scriptures. So not only does the Spirit give us the Scriptures by inspiration, it gives us the illumination to read them, right? And this became a very important theme in the Protestant Reformation, that because of the power of the Holy Spirit, you can pick up a Bible and God can speak to you through it. And unless the Spirit does that, then it's just a book, yeah? So by the time you get to the end of the fourth century, Uh, You've got something here, uh, it's like the Creed of Epiphanius, it's called. This dates to the year 374. And this creed is really important because 
it is, we know that it was being used for what's called catechetical instruction. What that means is when someone wanted to become a Christian, they went through a series of doctrinal trainings and this creed was used to train them. So what that tells us is by the time we get to the end of the fourth century, the spirit is a foundational and indispensable part of Christian faith. And listen to what it says. We believe in the Holy Spirit who spoke in the law, who taught by the prophets, who descended into the Jordan, referring to the baptism of Jesus, who spoke by the apostles and who lives in the saints. Thus we believe in him that he is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the perfect spirit, the spirit paraclete, uncreated, just like father and son, uncreated, proceeding from the father and receiving of the son in whom we believe. So here you're finally starting to get a sort of well-developed and very dynamic theology of the spirit, where the spirit does lots of things. And I include this to, to emphasize that for early Christian thinkers, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was not a peripheral doctrine. I'm afraid that in our context, it's been driven to the periphery, that we're just not really sure what the Spirit does, why the Spirit is important. With the time we have remaining this evening, I just want to run through very quickly. We won't spend a lot of time here because I think the point will come through pretty clearly and we won't have to, to spend a lot of time. Uh, that the Bible speaks about the Spirit as a person. This really matters. And, and on top of that, not just any kind of person, but a divine person, one of the persons of the Trinity, right? So let's talk a little bit about it. Uh, here, I've, I've listed for you what I've called attributes of agency. And what I mean here is that as in the way that the Bible sees it, the Spirit performs verbs that only a person can perform, uh, not what an object can perform. So I've called these attributes of agency. And what I mean is this. Well, let's just run through some of them. The Spirit is depicted as having cognition. Right? The Spirit is uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, but also in Romans 8 and lots of other places. I've only given you two examples here. The Spirit is, is said to know things, right? to know them, or even to search things, even the deep things of God, Paul tells us. So the Spirit knows things. Objects, forces, it's, they can't know things. The Spirit is depicted as having volition, meaning that it can exercise a will, right? It decides things. Uh, I should say he decides things. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're told that the Spirit gives uh, gifts to the members of the church at its discretion, right? So the Spirit decides, deliberates, uh, and then uh, dispenses the spiritual gifts. The Spirit is shown as having emotion. This is highly significant. Paul says in uh, Ephesians 4, don't grieve the Spirit. Grief is a profoundly personal emotion. We might define grief as sort of maybe wounded love that an object can't express, a force can't express, a sort of nameless power can't express. Only a person can be grieved. And Paul speaks quite chillingly that the church can do things which grieve the spirit, which is a pretty scary thought. The Spirit performs all kinds of personal functions. So it's got these attributes of agency, but then uh, it, the Spirit performs things that only a person can uh, perform. John 14 tells us that the Spirit teaches and reminds, right? Uh, the Spirit convicts of sin in John 16. That's one of the prime functions of the Spirit, actually. The New Testament seems to teach that unless the Spirit comes and convicts of sin, uh, sin is such that it will blind us to our own sin. That's one of the most pernicious things that sin does unless we are convicted by the Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit speaks. It declares. This is in John's Gospel too. You'll notice a lot of these references are from John. John has a very dynamic and powerful pneumatology working in the book. Uh, the Spirit leads and guides. Uh, this is particularly clear in the, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, I have a good friend at church uh, who was a missionary for many years, and he is a missiologist by training. Uh, and he says that Acts of the Apostles should really be called Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I, th I think he's right about that. I think that's a really helpful way to think about it, because the Spirit is seen as directing the church's mission, sort of directing Paul and his companions to go to one place and not to another. So the Spirit is doing sort of deliberative guiding work that only a person can do. Ah, the Spirit intercedes, we're told in Romans 8. I love this passage. Uh, Paul saying here, sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought. But he says, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Man, I love this. And as uh, someone who works in ministry and someone who frankly just has to exist in a world that is very complicated and mired in sin, uh, that we don't often know how to pray how we should. And we, and we don't know what to pray for or how to pray. And I wonder if you've ever had the experience where you are so deeply pained or troubled or overwhelmed that you can't even pray. All you can do is sort of groan, right? Or sigh or maybe sob or cry. One of the most beautiful passages about the Holy Spirit is the idea that the Spirit can take those groanings, uh, which are in, inarticulate, and can translate them into a language acceptable to God. So the Spirit uh, does something so deeply intimate and personal that he, he knows our innermost groanings and he translates them uh, to God, takes our prayers to God for us. Man, it's so beautiful. The Spirit commands and directs. This is related to what I already said in Acts, right? Where uh, A good example is in Acts chapter 8, uh, where Philip is driven, directed by the Holy Spirit to the Ethiopian eunuch. All that is to say, you get the point, that the Spirit performs verbs that only a person can perform. Uh, conversely, the Spirit can be acted upon uh, in ways that only persons can be acted upon. So we're sort of turning it around to the passive voice. So not only does the Spirit do what only persons can do, the Spirit can be related to as only persons can be related to. Does that make sense? So for example, the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. Right? We're told in Mark chapter 3, Jesus warns of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can only blaspheme a person. And, and in fact, you can only blaspheme a divine person. Uh, you can curse all kinds of inanimate objects if you like. You know, if you, I don't know, you get into a car accident, you can swear at your car, right? Or if it doesn't start, but your car doesn't know. It's just a thing, right? The Spirit can be lied to. Man, there's this really strange story in Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira, they go and they possess this property and they sell it and they only give part of the proceeds to the church, which is fine, but the problem is they sort of represent that they've given all of the proceeds, but they kept some for themselves. And Peter says to them, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You can't lie to an object or a force. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. Now, uh... You might say, well, you know, forces can be resisted too, right? Like you can try to resist the force of gravity by jumping, right? Or you can try to resist the gravitational pull of donuts that are nearby. But what we mean here is that the spirit, uh, 
we can try to resist the Spirit's purposes. Uh, that's one of the things that the New Testament sort of teaches, is that uh, even though God has certain designs for, for his people, we can act in ways that resist what God is trying to accomplish. Now, ultimately, God's, accomplished, uh, God's purposes will prevail. We can't ultimately prevent them, but we can resist them. Holy Spirit can be quenched. Uh, this is another chilling passage in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, hey, listen, uh, don't try to foil what the Spirit is trying to do among you, which is another pretty somber warning for us, that we can behave in ways as individuals and as a church that quench the Spirit. Uh, and the Holy Spirit can be insulted uh, or uh, sometimes translated outraged in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, you can insult an inanimate object. You can make fun of, I don't know, you can make fun of, oh, a piece of clothing or Texas or something, but those things don't know you're making fun of them. They just are. But the Holy Spirit can be insulted. It can be outraged. That's, that's moral, emotional language, uh, appropriate only for persons. So we've established that the Holy Spirit is a person. The way that the, the Bible depicts the Spirit is as a person, but it's not just any person. It is a divine person. Uh, the Spirit is a person of the Trinity, right? Shares in God's own essence. And the Bible makes this abundantly clear if we know where to look, uh, because there are attributes that are applied to the Spirit that can only be said of God uh, in his own essence. So the Spirit is depicted as being eternal. Uh, this is right there in Genesis chapter one in the creation narrative, the second verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the next uh, verse? And the spirit of God was there hovering over the deep, right? So the spirit is right there alongside God, the father in creation. And then we're told in passages like Hebrews one and John one and Colossians one, that the son is there too. So creation itself is a triune action and the spirit is eternal. The spirit is uh, depicted as being omniscient in first Corinthians two, uh, Paul says that the Spirit knows the deep things of God, right? The things that only God knows, the Spirit knows too. Uh, Isaiah 40 says, who will instruct the Spirit of God or tell the Spirit of God anything it doesn't know? It's a rhetorical question, but the implied answer is no one <laughs> because the Spirit knows all things. The Spirit is depicted as being omnipotent, right? Uh, accomplishing God's purposes, and it can't be stopped ultimately. The Spirit does what uh, the Spirit wants. This is another theme in John chapter three. You may see where, it been, where it's been, but you don't know where it's going and you, don't, you can't control it. Uh, omnipresent, right? Psalm 139. If I run away, if I go down into Sheol, into the deep, uh, even there your spirit will be. All that is to say, the Bible speaks of the spirit in the way that it speaks about God, right? Uh, the Bible also makes really clear, particularly in the New Testament, that the Spirit shares a divine essence uh, with the Father and the Son. And here, grammar is important again. I'll give you just a few examples. 1 Corinthians uh, 6 speaks of the Spirit of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 speaks of the Spirit of the living God. Uh, Galatians 4, the Spirit of God's Son. Uh, all that is to say that in Greek, the grammar is important here, and it, uh, it communicates... Uh, of means something like sharing in, right? So the spirit who shares in God's essence uh, is what's being communicated here. Another important grammatical point is in John 14. 
where John, uh, Jesus has begun his farewell discourse. He knows he's about to die and then return to the Father after his resurrection. And he says to his disciples, I'm going to send you another helper from the Father. Uh, and he says in Greek, alon parakleton. Uh, there's that word parakletos, right? The, the helper, advocate. Alon is a Greek word uh, that means another, and it means another of the same kind, right? Uh and there's another Greek word that means another, but it means another of a different kind. This is the word heteros, as in, I don't know, heterosexual, right? Uh, you are attracted to another who is of a different kind than you. That's the idea. And what's significant is that Jesus does not use heteron. He uses alon, saying, so essentially, I'm not sending you someone who is different than God the Father. I am sending you another who is of same substance, right? Uh, you're probably tired of grammar. All that is to say the Bible speaks of the Spirit very clearly as sharing in the divine essence. It also speaks of the Spirit as being wherever the Father and the Son are, right? There's these Trinitarian narratives. The baptism of Jesus is a good example, where uh, God the Father is uh, expressing his uh, pleasure with his Son, and the Spirit is there uh, sort of binding the three together. We also see this in some of the early Christian confessions that we find in Scripture. The Great Commission is a good example, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, in Ephesians 4, Paul gives this sort of mini confession, for there is one Spirit, one Lord, one God, and Father of all. Uh, you also see this in the gifting of the church, which is... Uh, the church is the people that is headed by Christ. Christ is the head of the church in service of the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so the very shape of early Christian life is Trinitarian, which suggests that the Spirit plays a really important role. I want to draw our time together here to a close by briefly talking about some of the key operations of the Spirit. Um, there's lots that we could say about what the Spirit does, uh, but I want to just key in on four. Uh, number one, the Spirit is God's power and presence. What do I mean by this? Well, um, you know, you've probably read the Pentecost account in Acts chapter 2. If you have not, I really encourage you to, because it's a very important passage, because not only is it the founding of the church, and not only does it sort of show that God's people are being empowered by the Spirit to go out and do ministry, there's a couple of very particular things happening in in Acts chapter 2. One is that the, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, very clearly wants you to be thinking of an Old Testament passage when you read this. And he wants you to be thinking of Joel chapter 2. Because Joel chapter 2 is a prophecy in which the prophet says, the day is coming when God is going to come and he's going to rescue his people and he's going to dwell with them. And he says, the day is coming when I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So when you read Acts chapter 2, Luke wants you to understand that as the fulfillment of God's promise in Joel chapter 2, that the Spirit is going to be poured out and people are going to come to know God. Acts chapter 2 is also meant to be a, a direct reversal of the Tower of Babel, which you get in Genesis chapter 11, I think, uh, where Humanity tries to build their way to God. They're trying to rise up to God. And as a result, he scatters them and confuses their languages, right? And if you read Acts 2 carefully, you're going to see it's an exact reversal because humanity is not trying to come to God. 
God comes to humanity in the spirit and he reverses the curse because we were separated by our languages before. We couldn't understand one another. And that's what uh, the curse had done in Genesis 11. But by the power of the spirit, they can all understand one another. So the spirit is the reversal of the curse. The spirit is uh, the power of God to undo everything that was uh, done by sin. And one of my favorite images for the spirit in the Bible is a down payment of the age to come. The Greek word here is arabon. It's a financial term. And the spirit is twice referred to as an arabon, once in Ephesians 1 and one in 2 Corinthians 1. And what it means is down payment uh, or earnest money. It's a financial term. So if you've ever bought a house before, you'll know that when you're applying for your mortgage and you're doing all the closing, you have to provide earnest money up front to the seller. And what that does is it, it gives, you give that money to the seller to say, I'm serious about this. I'm going to follow through. And what's interesting is Paul uses that word to talk about the spirit. It's as if, as, it's as if God is giving the spirit as a down payment saying, listen, I'm going to make good on the promise to restore all things, to reconcile all of creation. And here's the proof that I'm going to do it. I give you my spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee. So this is really important because when we think about what it means to live a Christian life, when we are feeling weary and we are feeling tired and we are feeling tempted by sin and we're feeling uh, the tug of despair, we can remember that we've got that earnest money. God has pledged that he's going to make good on his promises. And we know that because we have the spirit. It makes tons of practical difference. Number two, the spirit is the illuminator of revelation, right? The Nicene Creed puts it like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit who spoke by the prophets. And uh, I've given you two examples, but I could give you more, right? This happens on a literal level. We see in Isaiah chapter uh, one or Ezekiel chapter two, where we have the spirit of God actually speaking through the prophets, putting the words of God into their mouth. And so the spirit is the one who makes God known to us through revelation, uh, through illuminating the words of the prophets. Uh, and so the doctrine of scripture, as I mentioned earlier in our talk, really, I think, should be understood as a subset of pneumatology. Uh, sometimes you'll read in a big systematic theology textbook. Actually, wait, nobody reads those, right? Uh, but if you have to go to seminary or something, you read a big systematic theology textbook. Sometimes you'll see the doctrine of scripture as its own doctrinal category. And I think that's fine. But I really think that we should, we should put scripture under the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because that's the way that the scriptures tend to think about themselves. A good example in 2 Timothy 3, many of you will know this passage, all scripture is God-breathed, Paul says. The word in Greek is theopanoustos, God breathed, it's related to that word for pneuma, for wind. So these writings, Paul says, actually have the spirit of God breathed into them, right? Second Peter uh, says it, uh, something similar in chapter one, that uh, no, no prophet ever spoke on his own will and accord, but only as he was carried along, the, it says, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is really important because without the Spirit, and this is a theme that's very important to the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, but especially John Calvin, if you come from a Calvinist tradition, that we are helpless to decipher the Scriptures unless the Spirit of God illuminates them for us, right? You've probably all been to a Bible study, right, where 
someone says, what this passage means to me is, and then they say something insane or heretical, right? Uh, the reason is anybody can just pick up the Bible and sort of try to make sense of it. But unless we are in step with the Spirit, uh, these words are just words, right? The Spirit is the engine, the illuminator of revelation. Number three, the Spirit is the animator of what I've called the pneumatic life, the life in the Spirit as an individual, right? The Belgic Confession, which was a Reformation document uh, dating from the mid-16th century, 1561, puts it like this, the Holy Spirit creates in our hearts an upright faith. And what they meant was, it is impossible to live the Christian life without the continual power of the Spirit. So we might put it like this, the Spirit creates the life of faith. Uh, when we turn away from God and uh, turn away from sin and turn to God in repentance, we are told that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. I mentioned earlier that in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is not talking about individual Christians being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the community, the church. Later, though, in 1 Corinthians 7, he does talk about individuals being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so the truth is that the Spirit animates the pneumatic life, which means that we are no longer slaves to sin and death, right? When we are tempted by sin, for instance, we do not have to do it. We are not powerless against it. We often fail, but we often fail to remember that we are indwelled by the Spirit of God, which means that the Spirit sustains the life of faith, uh, if you want to grow in the faith and if you want what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction, if you want to be able to look back on a lifetime of faithfulness in following Jesus, every single day will have to be lived in dependence on the Spirit of God because we cannot do it under our own power. And last, the Spirit is the engine of the church's work and witness in the world. I mentioned earlier in our talk that lots of early Christian theologians, I talked about Ignatius and I talked about the Apostle Paul and Clement of Alexandria, they all link the Spirit to the doctrine of the church, okay? The Spirit animates the church's mission, right? Jesus says to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Man, we are afraid to share our faith. I often am. I'm ashamed to say I'm a pastor, a theology professor. I'm ashamed to share my faith. And the reason is, is because I often think that I have to do it on my own power. That, uh, that if I can only think of the best way to put the gospel, if I can put it in such an eloquent or beautiful or convincing way that someone will believe it, uh, then I'll share it. But here's the problem. That's not how the New Testament talks about witness. Jesus talks about the people of God being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right? So the Holy Spirit ought to be behind everything that we do as a church, not only in our worship and in our service and in our preaching, but in our outward looking ministry to the world. It's animated by the Spirit. The Spirit is the bond that holds us together in unity. This is, again, Paul in Ephesians. There is one Spirit, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. This is how Cyril of Alexandria, a theologian in the 5th century, put it. All who have received the one and the same Spirit are, in a sense, merged together with one another and with God. This is really important. The Spirit is what binds the church together. Uh, personal soapbox here that I'm going to climb on for just a second, then I'll jump off. The church is not a club. 
The church is not held together by common interests. The church is not a group of people who, whom you happen to like. On one level, Paul, for instance, does not care if you like the people you go to church with personally. He doesn't care if they are people that you would hang out with outside of church. And in fact, it's probably better if they're not, because that shows that the Spirit of God is at work. We are not held together because we have common interests. We're not held together because we're in a similar stage of life. We're not held together because we have personalities that line up. Now, if you can go to church with people that you like, by all means, great. But here's the thing. It is the Spirit of God that holds the church together not anything else, not the worship music, not how, uh, how good the production is, not how eloquent or powerful your preacher is. Preaching, worship, that stuff all matters. But the question is, is the spirit of God there? And if we really understood that we grieve the spirit when we break fellowship with one another, I think we do it a lot less often. Not only does the Spirit animate the church's mission, it gives us the equipment we need to do it. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. And he this gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and the building up the body of Christ. Uh, it is a good thing to know that everything the church needs to do uh, has been given to the church by the Spirit of God. Now, we need to be careful in discerning what the Spirit would have us do. We need to be in step with the Spirit, as Paul puts it. We need to be attuned to the Spirit. But we can be confident that we can live the Christian life, both individually and together, only in the power of the Spirit. So this week, I challenge you to think about the Spirit. Commune with the Spirit. Be sensitive to what the, the Spirit is doing, not only in your own life, but in your community and in the world. Because the Spirit is God's power and presence among us. So uh, with that, I will leave you to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I will look forward to uh, reconvening with you next week. We, we, we are going to have a look at the doctrine of human being, theological anthropology. What is a person uh, in relationship to God? So that's the question we'll be taking up next week. And I'll look forward to seeing you then. <laughs>